Welcome to episode six of Three Security Buddies. I'm your host, Matthias Berilli, and I'm joined by Paul Kerr. Howdy, Paul. How's it going? Oh, not bad. Okay. And on the almighty Robert Clark. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Keep fighting the good fight. Ah, there we go. <laughs> That's awesome. Seems like uh, this is a pretty light week, but let's see what we can make out of it. I actually would like to, I don't think we have any follow-ups, but um, I was reading the news and um, Filippo was sharing uh, from Google. He was sharing uh, some news about fuzzing, uh, the, the actual fuzzing model in Go, making it all the way to, to beta. And I just think this this is fascinating. Uh, and I wish a few other languages actually have this native support. So I think the, the t- you know the three of us know exactly what Fasten is, but I actually never seen it before reaching a level of maturity or a level of um, a union between the, the actual language and the tools of the language to actually incorporate it, almost as if you would incorporate unit testing. Uh, I, I've heard Paul and you, Robert, talk about how important unit testing is, but I wonder, uh, you know, if this is sort of the, the canary to get started and other languages start including and making fasting almost not as part of security, but part of common development practices that you need to fast your code to make sure that, you, you know, that you cover all test cases or possible cases that you were not thinking about and using fasting for that. It's just, uh, I, I mean, I, I not only think it's an interesting security tool, I think it's an overall good development tool. So I, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see once this actually goes out of beta, how useful it's going to become for not only the security community uh, that, that, that that's testing in Go, but also for the community in general of developers if, to see if, if it goes mainstream as just normal testing has, has become in the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it, oh, go ahead, Rob. I think Paul can probably speak in more detail on this. I've not played with modern fuzzing frameworks uh, to kind of date me. I used to do a lot of work with Sully back in the day. And, um, and I think that went through a name change because reasons. But the thing with uh, the thing that fuzzing, I think, needs, if it's not there already, is some sort of automated discovery of the parameters that you're then going to go ahead and fuzz. So did some work a long time ago looking at using things like Swagger API definitions to automatically go and build stuff that would figure out how to do the fuzzing. And I think you probably need similar type of things for all the other stuff that you can fuzz. Fuzzing APIs is interesting, but it's also, uh, it's, it's useful for finding kind of logical, just, just business logic errors in the way that APIs work a lot of the time. Fuzzing binary formats is far more interesting and far harder to do in an automated way. It's far harder to sort of like, just build a tool that will go and understand what you're building. So yeah, Paul, what, what, what were your thoughts? Uh, so. First of all, interesting that you started with started and ended with Sully, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the more modern fuzzing obviously has some some very interesting properties to it, right? Like in the libfuzzer world, which is kind of the in many ways it's the, the the best of the modern fuzzers. There are other fuzzers that have other properties that matter, but libfuzzer is interesting in the sense that like it can be a coverage guided fuzzer, right? It has concepts of like whether or not it's finding new edges and new code paths, and it uses those to, to uh, create larger and larger corpuses uh, that it writes out to a separate file so that you can load up your, your set of test cases that it considers to be unique paths through it and then mutate based on those. Uh, in addition, it has support for things like uh, grammars and dictionaries so that it has concepts of like, it's difficult to deeply fuzz formats that have a lot of structure. Uh, and so 
things like dictionaries and things like corpus files uh, help you teach the fuzzer what you should mutate off of and how to like more get deeper into the program without trying to just enumerate the set of all possible bytes between zero and infinity, uh, which is obviously the, the, the worst case scenario that you like devolve into if you don't have smarts inside of your fuzzer. Like modern fuzzing tools have a lot of really interesting properties that allow you to, to uh, reveal behaviors you may not have anticipated inside of your program, which is kind of the point, right? Like classically fuzzing ends up being the most useful in memory unsafe languages, because in memory unsafe languages, one of the interesting questions is, is there any way for me to trick your program into doing something that is a very clear security problem? And memory and safety generally tends to be one of those, right? Use after freeze, double freeze, uh, like buffer overflows, uh, underflows, all the sorts of things that you would imagine could happen um, are things that fuzzers are very good at finding. And so that's classically what we think of. But now we have this Go fuzzing framework. And that's kind of an interesting concept because, of course, in Go, unless you're doing things with, uh, there, I mean, there are ways to perform memory unsafe operations in Go, and then of course there's also CGO, but Go classically is a memory safe language. So the fuzzing looks a lot more like logical fuzzing. Uh, and that overlaps quite heavily with things like property testing. And so that's an interesting concept to like say, well, where, where do you use fuzzing? Where is property testing more appropriate? And I don't, I don't know that like we as an industry have a good answer to that, uh, or maybe someone does, but I don't. Certainly, I think that both of them have their place and that, they're, that that place has sometimes significant degrees of overlap. I guess my inclination would be to say that fuzzing is more useful in scenarios where you don't control or don't believe that it's uh, reliable, or you have reliable control over the invariance that you would normally express inside of a property tester. Like a, in a property tester, you say like, hey, I want you to test you know, this permutation set, but maybe that's not actually the, the, the limited like the set of things that are limitable. Like uh, a Go application is frequently network facing. Uh, the only limits that actually exist on that are that, well, the packets have to be well formed enough that the kernel passed them through to the socket that your program is listening on. And it's reformed them and you know done all the, uh, all the uh, defragmentation, even if that defragmentation turns out to be a Wi-Fi attack. Uh, that's something a Go program can't fix. <laughs> but uh, like those, at that level, you have to, you need to be able to, be prepared for anything. And so fuzzing becomes very interesting. Circling back around to like what Matthias's original point was then, I actually think, it, I agree with you that it's it's a fascinating new world to have this like first class fuzzing support in a language. Go's test frameworks are generally pretty good. I've, I talked with Katie Hawkman a few years ago about some of the work she was doing around this, and I'm really excited to see it continue to mature. Like it looks like it's not gonna be in the next Go, Go it won't be in Go 1.17. But that means maybe go 1.18, it'll be officially stable. I think this will genuinely find bugs, bugs that would not have been found in other scenarios. And I guess that would broadly fall into two classes in my mind. There's a set of bugs that fuzzers are better at finding, and that's true even in memory safe languages, which apropos of, of Rob's statements around uh, logical errors that are difficult to ascertain in APIs. And then there's the secondary one, which is Sometimes you just don't write very good tests, like for whatever reason, you're time constrained, you're budget constrained. And fuzzers sometimes, I mean, they're not as good, a fuzzer is not as useful as a good test, but a fuzzer can partially cover for a, for a bad test suite because it will find certain classes of bugs that you wouldn't have found because you weren't testing before. I think there's like, it's inevitable that it will rise the tide. Um, the most interesting thing to me is just gonna be 
what is the bug density found in languages like this? Because, um, I mean, I know that there are people who are fuzzing experts in languages like Python and Go uh, and Java, but like my fuzzing expertise largely lies in the realm of memory unsafe languages. So like, I'm very curious what the bug density and the return on investment will be on these types of things. If, if I don't think about it from a security perspective and more from a development perspective, uh, the, the two big wins that I see here is, and Robert's not going to like this one, but like shifting security to the left, but not really from the classical security point of view, but like literally now, and given developers control over uh, or fussing, and the, you know, Katie's article actually makes makes a case for this. She she literally goes and, and states that, hey, this is actually going to help, uh, you know, this potentially discover new, uh, code new, new code coverage, things that unit testing was missing, or actually uncover, you know, edge cases that you were not properly covering, which is exactly what you said, Paul, right? Like, uh, if even if you have good test case scenarios and, you know, prob no, I don't think test cases cover 100% of things all the time and they don't cover all code. Like even the best, you know, places, it's always missing something. Uh, not not because you didn't cover it, because, you know, it's just edge casing when you use semi-random data and probably there's a very high chance that there was one thing or two things you didn't think about it. It does not mean that it's going to find all bugs, but I think it just takes, it takes testing, not even security testing, it takes testing... Uh, you know, one notch up, and you know, one closer, one step closer to being able, you know, being able to reach that that level of 100% coverage or 100% edge edge casing testing. I don't think it's 100, but like it, it's getting it there. So any way that I see it, I think it brings very interesting capabilities to developers to be able to continue to improve testing as they build code. Most of the fussing that we do, it's either like truly black box or or a black box in the sense that we don't we don't understand all of the code that we create in you know when you use lit files and stuff we don't actually understand all of the code path we literally try and like brute force our way through finding bugs but in this case it's completely the opposite like ideally people do understand what they're testing against they just potentially don't know all of the potential edge cases or you know all of the potential code paths my bet here is that you know five years from now we will see people writing unit tests and also writing fasting tests in order to say, okay, like, I think I have like 90% coverage, but I want to write a bunch of fast tests because that's actually going to help me to, you know, get five, 6%, 8% more and probably get even better coverage. And I think that's a huge win for the industry in general. And, and, and it gives yet another bunch on the maturity level of, of developing code. So that's why I, I just think this is this is amazing work, and I and I look forward to actually see this in other languages and in other you know sort of like uh, tool chains from many other languages that you know I, I don't know if Rust is for example trying to implement something like this, but it will be it will be pretty interesting as well. Uh, Rust has a concept called well cargo fuzz. So there is a, a fuzzer. It's it's built on libfuzzer because of course the entire Rust tool chain is LLVM, which means that libfuzzer is a trivial thing to use inside their world, and much like this uh, the Go fuzzing tooling. One of the nice things about it is that you can build fuzzing targets that are time boxed so that you can run them in CI, uh, which is kind of a different model than classical fuzzers, which just run forever until you terminate them. I think like all things, the I'm not particularly familiar with either framework, uh, but the two things that tend to govern this will be the amount of effort required by an individual developer to actually get value out of the system 
And that kind of ties into the second point, which is whatever the signal to noise out of the fuzzing is. Look across the entire lifetime of similar and notionally simpler security technologies like static analysis. Developers still hate using those because they're too noisy and too broken in too many cases. Fuzzing, I think, actually has the opportunity to to skip over a lot of the false positives there because you're actually looking at the output of flows versus kind of trying to static analysis almost almost guesstimates about like a thing that is bad and could potentially result in a bad output. At least with fuzzing, you're kind of working backwards from like I managed to generate a bad output. But yeah, those two things, you know, developer effort and signal to noise are definitely going to be the things that govern the success of something like this. Very interesting point. And, and you're right, I, I, like anything, if it has way too many false positives, you ended up not using it because it's more work to actually deal with those and to actually <laughs> get you know, usefulness out of it. As Rob said, the, uh, the false positive rates in static analysis can be seriously problematic. In fuzzers, the memory unsafe fuzz, like memory and safety fuzzers can sometimes have trouble like with flaky tests because like something that didn't quite trigger ASAN a little bit earlier or MSAN or UBSAN uh, will then have like a knock-on effect such that you get an error and you don't necessarily get the root cause. In general, ASAN, MSAN, and UBSAN are very, very good these days. And so you typically find where you're looking very quickly. I think memory safe fuzzers are actually less likely to have false positives than that even. Because in a memory safe fuzzer, you mostly just care that like an exceptional state occur, right? Like if you're fuzzing Python, it's an unexpected exception. If you're fuzzing Go, it's a panic. Um, and so like in those scenarios, you can unwind your stack, I would expect highly reliably to figure out what the state really was. The proof of the pudding will be in the eating, I suppose. So let's see what uh, developers do once they get this in their hand. Yeah, we can uh, come back to this topic two, three, five years from now when it's actually, you know, hopefully being used mainstream across many languages. And we can see if all of our predictions actually pan out to be or, or we were completely wrong. Talking about code and writing good code, Stack Overflow was actually apparently bought by uh, a European company, which also happens to be one of the biggest Tencent holders. And it obviously, you know, we saw a, a bunch of tweets across you know, uh, the internets talking about like, hey, supply chain this, supply chain that, and making, you know, funny comments about like, you know, people actually do copy a lot of code. <laughs> Uh, from Stack Overflow, and you will say, I mean, some people even joke that the best way to write a program is to basically copy-paste from Stack Overflow, and you ended up with something running. Me being a foreign, the one thing that I found very, very ironic is that whenever a U.S. company gets bought by anything that is foreign, people immediately start to panic. But what they don't realize is that the rest of the world this is their normal life and the normal state of being because most big, you know, tech companies, they either come from the U.S. or they have most of the U.S. investing. So, yes, there is a potential as, you know, the, sort of this, the, the cyber, quote unquote, industry starts getting more, there is a lot more politics involved in it. Uh, you know, countries where these things are coming from or where they're in whole actually do matter because, you know, different laws, different ways of looking at things. But at the same time, 
I don't disagree that it's a potential supply chain attack issue if somebody, you know, intentionally tries to add bad code that could end up somewhere. But that can be done today. There, I mean, I don't think anybody's literally watching for that. So if you really want to use Stack Overflow for supply chain attacks, you don't, you don't really care who actually owns it. But it does raise a very interesting cybersecurity sort of like political question about what is the future of ownership and how will it impact the security industry uh, from a supply chain attack? Like would it would companies start to require that, you know, like suppliers, even from a software perspective, have to be from a specific country or, you know, have roots there? And we see it a little bit more in hardware and we see when, you know, the U.S. government has made strong attempts at saying, hey, this company cannot be used for as a government contractor or et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder how this is going to start expanding to industries and even to sites such as Stack Overflow, which they're not really a provider to anybody. But to some respect, I don't disagree that they are part of a quote unquote supply chain, given that it's extensively used by developers across the, you know, across the world. Whenever we look for something related to code, probably like the top three, four answers in, in the Google search actually do come from Stack Overflow. I, I, when I saw this, I, I, I found it funny, like, you know, uh, uh, most of the panic came from, from people in the U.S., uh, but I guess they're not used to being acquired. They're used to acquiring companies, and for some reason, they don't see that as an issue. But when a, a foreign company acquires a U.S. company, they see that as an issue. And I get it why, but I, I guess the rest of the world is used to because most, most companies are uh, U.S. based. And, and, I'll, and I'll give an example. Like I think when WhatsApp was acquired or when Skype was acquired by, by U.S. based companies, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that also escalated somewhat in Europe as to, hey, you know, what are the consequences of that now that our, we know, will our data be actually exist somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. I think the arena and the stage, a military, political, and just general supply chain point of view, is not the same that it was, you know, five, ten years ago. What do you guys think? I think most assertions around geographical or origins and sovereignties when it comes to these types of business arrangements are completely pointless, void, vacuous, and a waste of everybody's time. I think this extends not just to sovereignty, but also this concept of membership more generally of a given organization or country. You know, I used to work at a company where, you know, we super, super did not trust contractors, but we super, super trusted the much worse paid people who happened to have a direct contract with us where that meant that we guaranteed to pay them monthly versus people who were billing us hourly. For some reason, those people were super trustworthy and definitely going to always do the right thing. Like this to me, like membership of a company versus membership of a country, I don't, I don't think it makes a blind bit of difference in most cases. The thing I'm obviously ignoring there is when perhaps ownership within a certain sovereignty implies significant ideological differences uh, with like the originating place. So uh, to take this uh, an, an extremist, imagine GitHub was bought. I know Microsoft owns it now, but imagine it had bought by like a shell organization in North Korea. You know, there there are clearly ideological differences about what's going to happen with the code around 
sovereignty and, and very, very, people would be very worried that this loss of control would be dangerous. In general, though, in general, I think this is all, I think there are so many worse things for us to be worried about in the space of cybersecurity that people getting up in arms about this is just stupid. Like, don't blindly copy code. And if a bad person wanted to come and, you know, if a bad person wanted to stick stuff on Stack Overflow a year ago or a year from now, it's going to make, like, the owners of the organization makes a zero difference in my completely unqualified opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Rob. I don't think I have a lot more to add here. Uh, the sociopolitical aspects of concerns around ownership wax and wane based on administrations, based on perceived ability to, for them to harm some national interest, which is usually nebulously defined. So like, sometimes I, I, sometimes I may be sympathetic to it, sometimes I'm not. Like, it's, I feel like it's such a broad brush to paint everything with that it becomes useless as anything other than a uh, generic rallying cry. So I think Rob's points are well, well made, as are yours, Matthias, and, and there's nothing more I can say. Yeah, I think the, 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 the only valid question here is when it comes to data sovereignty and not because there's security, necessarily security implications, because, I mean, you could have a good security team anywhere, regardless who owns it. But, you know, it, it's just political. And like you said, like how, how the specific company that owns and where it's actually sitting, where are their views and perspectives around data sovereignty or what they can do and what are the regulations. So all of a sudden... Uh, if GitHub, to your point, if GitHub was acquired by North Korea, uh, yes, there's a lot of issues, but as long as data will reside within the U.S., they will have to abide by U.S. laws. But if all of a sudden all of the servers are being hosted out of North Korea, then, you know, there, there are other implications. And I think a lot of these, uh, when you see how Europeans actually, you know, have all of their privacy, all of the different type of privacy regulations they do, I think a lot of them actually are related to that, not necessarily to security. But how do we actually know where, where data actually exists? Because most of the regulations are, you can do whatever. I don't care, we don't care who owns a company as long as the data is being hosted here. So, so those countries can still enforce some, some type of laws and regulations uh, upon that data. But from a security perspective, and I mean, you said it yourself, uh, Robert, like a year ago and a year from now is completely irrelevant. It, it makes more, much more of an interesting economical like, you know, like a sort of like a political slash economical discussion than, than actually a security. But still, like I was surprised to see how many people were talking about about uh, about this and mixing it with supply chain that I just found it funny and and, uh, and uh, I'm worth actually commenting. And I honestly wanted to see your guys' opinion about it. You know, what, what we're seeing here is the fact that supply chain security is, it's very important. Um, it has been for a long time, but there are a number of things that have happened recently that have kind of brought it to the forefront of the security conversation. And I think it has reached, you know, there's enough weight around it now that any topic that's tangentially related gets kind of washed with this term because it's the current sensational thing within security. Quite rightly so. It's the thing that we've all known deep down was a really big problem. And very few places in the world, very few organizations have managed to solve it. And in fact, the only places I can think of that have tried to like truly protect themselves from the deep supply chain type issues have done so not through solving the problem, but through isolating it. So, you know, look at the most paranoid types of, you know, secure deployments 
um, whether it's in banks, whether it's in governments, you know, you're getting into air gaps and separate operations teams and, you know, SCIFs and ICD, whatever it is, 503 and 702, all that stuff. And, you know, a lot of that is to deal with the fact that there's just this underlying, yeah, something in the supply chain is going to screw us. And we don't know if it's a chip or a library or what, but like something, something will screw us at some point. And so we have to build these hyper expensive controls. So, yeah, I think I think this is only an issue because supply chain security as a topic is very hot right now. I think we'll continue to see a ton of interesting research in that space. I know there's something else you want to talk about um, in the show today along those lines, Matthias, but I think if supply chain wasn't top of mind right now, uh, I doubt this would have ever left anyone's mouth as like a, a thing that anyone should be worried about. I know, but I, I also know that probably Paul's solution is to do blockchain tuna uh, supply chain control because we're going to use some some sort of like blockchain cyber secure supply blockchain chain solution. I mean, and I use all of the current, yeah, all of the passwords in a single solution. We, we could make a lot of money, uh, Paul, I'm just wow. saying. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm just, uh, just as a note for you, Matthias, you, you may have to remove a bunch of really loud thunder from my... Uh, <laughs> from my sound, they just shook the walls here. Wow, I di- I did not hear it thanks to your actually um, uh, very good Apple ex- overly expensive uh, That's devices. Right. You buy your way out of some problems and into a whole new set of problems. On the on the supply chain front, the last thing I was going to mention is just that uh, supply chain is obviously top of mind, but I would argue uh, ransomware is clearly a bigger problem right now. <laughs> I don't think those two. Yes, it is, but I th- I don't think those two things are separate. If you look at the investments that go into research and stuff over the next year, I think most of that's going to, I think more of that will go into supply chain than will into ransomware protection. You're probably right. The executive order, for example, actually would probably actually require a lot of supply chain. And even though it was bought as a ransomware incident, which by the way, I, I was reading on the news that uh, this whole thing apparently started out of a shared password that got leaked. A VPN password, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's just the beauty of it. One little thing. I know we don't do sponsorships on here, but, you know, if we did one password, that's, you know, I'll throw that out for free. Actually, I don't care which password manager you use. Just please use one. Yeah, I agree with you. Anyone, anyone would abide. Since we're talking about supply chain, we can skip a couple of topics. And devs.dev, you know, we're back at with Google. They actually released, I think, last week, uh, a pretty interesting website that literally gives you, uh, I think it actually takes the package systems from Rust, NP, I mean, NPM, Go, and Maven, and makes them all available for you to actually check for a specific package, and it's going to give you the full dependency tree, and including uh, potential vulnerabilities, uh, information and metadata about those packages and their dependencies, and also licensing checks. And I, I think this is extremely useful. Uh, I know a lot of companies that currently care about this, they actually need this. The system itself is not open source, so it's not like you can deploy it in, uh, internally in a company mm. and privately use it. But the idea, I think it's a, a pretty good idea of using graphs to actually show dependencies and, and build these database is something that a lot of startups and a lot of companies in general would actually see as something extremely useful for the industry. I think we have discussed this in the past, but most people when they're writing code and they import a specific library, they don't realize the dependency tree that they actually have. It's literally an iceberg. They see the top, you know, it's just the tip of it. 
but underlying there is a ginormous amount of dependencies that you could be including one library, but in reality you're actually executing code from 200. When you when you do a pip install uh, for a very common library, you actually might realize that all of a sudden you're installing you know 20, 30, 40, and and even from an OS perspective, right? When you install a library to start coding something or you know build something, you you ended up installing a lot of packages. I think the, the perfect example of that is like genome and, and the dependency tree that any sort of genome package has. I think this is extremely useful. I'm, I'm very happy that that Google that, that, that the Google team decided to to build this and share this with the world. Uh, I hope that it's not like any other Google product that's released in beta and like six months from now disappear. But uh, the the license checker they actually made it uh, available, and I think that that on itself is actually extremely useful for comp- companies to to use and build code on it. And some of the very interesting tech details before we move on or anything like that is uh, it's completely written in Go and they literally rewrote all of the native packaging logic, extracting all of the installations, which allows them to have uh, 100% compatibility with the dependency tree, which I, I thought that was pretty clever and a pretty good way to maintain it up to date. I think it's really, really interesting. And, you know, I, th- I think you nailed it. Like we're, we're rarely actually cognizant of all the imports and stuff that we do and what that tree really looks like. So I went and had a look. Um, it doesn't support Python yet, um, which is kind of where my head's at. Like the most projects where I think I know how they work are either Python or, or little bits of Cube right now, which is Go. So I went and, and they don't support Rust yet either. But I went and had a look at Go and I was like, okay, well, what's an interesting, an interesting thing I understand in Go that has a fairly discrete surface? The thing that popped into my head is uh, GVisor. So GVisor is a container. It borrows from the idea of like, what if I run my container inside a VM? Uh, the VM that GVisor uses is uh, essentially a, a Go kernel that sits alongside. Most of these container in VM technologies, what they exist to do is reduce the number of syscalls that get filtered between that go to the host kernel because that's actually how you end up like influencing the kernel, breaking out, moving sideways. Uh, the Linux kernel supports around 160 syscalls. Um, Gvisor uh, does a reasonable job, um, reduces the number of sys- the number of syscalls that Gvisor actually propagates is around about 73. A lot of them are to do with internal functions of Gvisor and they're perfectly normal type things for a type two hypervisor to do. And some are things that they continue to hand off. Basically, we've got something that you know implements 160 discrete thingies, passes some of them on, and then I go and look at the uh, the table for Gvisor, and unhelpfully, it doesn't actually doesn't actually give me a sum of the table, which is a thing I could have checked. But looking at the size of it, you know, it's pulling in probably a hundred plus dependencies, uh, and a number of them have marked vulnerabilities against them. I have no idea if they're impactful for Gvisor, probably not. The team does very, very good security work. You know, you'll always get false positives and things in these trees. And I should point out, I work for a company that makes an alternative to Gvisor, which I can't run through this because the thing we have is written in Rust. But yeah, it's amazing to look at what is a project that is deliberately built to be as small as possible, to be as secure as possible and have few dependencies, create this graph that is hundreds of nodes wide. And, and within it, obviously, there are li- like corner cases where a library has a vulnerability. I think this is an excellent tool. Um, I think with all things, the challenge, again, is going to be the n- an amount of effort required to derive value from the tool. And again, the signal to noise. I have no doubt that the vulnerabilities I'm seeing here 
based on my faith in the team that works on this product, I have no doubt that the vulnerabilities that I'm seeing in indepth.dev are things that don't impact the platform. I'll go and I'll spend a little bit of time looking at this after the show. But uh, I think this is an excellent tool. I don't know, Paul, have you had a chance to have a play with it yet? So I've played with it a significant amount. So I, I, I'm going to take the, the, the contrary position. And I would say, I don't want this tool to exist in the long term. I think this tool is a wonderful way of demonstrating what these ecosystems need to do for themselves. Building these types of dependency trees and exposing your reverse dependency graphs and showing me the aggregate set of, of licenses, these are all things that my package manager for the language in question should be capable of doing. I should not need a third-party tool to do this. And so I would like to see this open source insights thing drive work in NPM, drive work in Go, drive work in Cargo and PyPI to make these things available directly. It is my understanding that much of that is the goal of some of these projects. That's probably where it's going, and that's also possibly why they're labeling it experimental project from Google. Like they're not calling it beta, they're calling it experimental. And I suspect that that means that they don't actually expect this to last forever. The other one I'll note is that while I think it's very cool that they're, de they're deriving uh, dependency graphs by parsing things using Go, that is literally impossible to do accurately with Python because of the old way Python setup.pys work, where they do runtime discovery of dependencies, which means you can only know your dependency graph by actually fully installing it. That is a terrible thing that Python did long ago and has been trying to unwind ever since. You can listen to our earlier episodes to hear about all the suffering Rob went through on just trying to figure out how to package a modern Python application, most of which is people trying to unwind that decision. But like, the reality is that when it says PyPI coming soon, that's partially because there is no way to actually accurately know the dependency graph of a Python package for a given platform, because it can be different on different platforms, without executing it on that platform. Wow, interesting. Can you, can you not get the data out of like some of the definitions that you have to do when you actually install a package and declare your You don't have to do those. Like the, there are declarative forms of that now but you don't have to do it that way. You can do it in a setup.py, which can import OS and then like look at environment variables in your computer and like what versions of the OS you're running to determine what your dependencies actually are. Okay, wow. That makes sense, yeah. That sucks. That honestly yeah, sucks. Well, and uh, the Python folks have known it sucked for a long time and have been trying to fix it for equally as long. Ruby has a similar problem, although the Ruby package stuff was a little less... Uh, was a little easier to fix. So I think in general, they have declarative package uh, stuff now. Yeah, but I, I overall agree with you. And, and I think to some point, these packages, this, you know, these this packages systems, they already have most of the data and they have, I mean, for, besides Python, as you rightly put it, uh, Go or Maven. And they actually do claim they have Rust support. I saw, I read there that they have Cargo. Uh, I don't know if it's still available. It's, but. it's there. It, it appears to have some issues. Like I looked up a few packages and it was showing me out of date versions and some things that I know exist aren't in there. So it seems like they're still working on that. What I was going is they already have, and they have to build a dependency tree themselves. What they don't have is they don't have features that actually show you just, Hey, what is the dependency tree? What are the licenses for? So even from a common line and actually potentially from the common line, this, if you could get this, would be extremely useful for, for companies and development teams to actually understand the potential exposure. Now, Robert, to your comment, I think that you we might end up with this 
having the same sort of like false positive rate that a static analysis tool have and uh, it will put in question how useful it is. Now, to your point, I think it's actually more useful for legal uh, from a license perspective because, you know, if you actually have a good, a relatively good legal uh, license detector, it would allow you to get, you know, do a reverse uh, dependency and get all of the potential licenses to not only determine, hey, you know, the package that they want to use, what license it is, but what are the licenses from all the dependencies and do you have any potential issues from, from there? I think that is extremely useful. Now, uh, from a vulnerability perspective, I agree with you. Uh, it's it it's very subjective. Like, is is that is, is the overall like the the same type of issue that you get from a scanning like an authenticated scan that just checks for like oval data? Where uh, just because you have a vulnerability doesn't mean that you have an exploitable vulnerability. And most a lot of people don't understand that extinction and they report it. They don't. I mean, and, and the industry in general has. All, all, and sometimes you don't even have a way beside literally testing it, whether you are there or actually looking at the code and going through the code pass or reviewing one by one uh, or in case by case, whether you are actually vulnerable or not. A lot of the time there is this confrontation between uh, a vulnerability management team saying, oh, you got to hash this or you got to fix this or you cannot use this library because it has a hundred vulnerabilities. And then the developing team coming back and saying, hey, but none of those hundred vulnerabilities actually affect us. Uh, and, and you actually gave a pretty good example of saying, hey, I'm pretty sure that potentially this has vulnerabilities, but this package, probably none of them affect them because they're, they're pretty good, you know, and you literally said you trust them. I wonder how, how truly useful this will become, even if the package is actually implemented because of the potential false positive ratio that I think the industry is somewhat used to by now with the vulnerability management example that I gave. But at the same time, it always and continues to create these never-ending discussions and arguments about, you know, being vulnerable and being exploitable, which it really, really depends on the maturity level of the vulnerability management team and the development team to actually come to agreement and come to somewhat of understanding of like, okay, like case by case, what actually makes sense to argue, what does make sense to actually accept the risk or, or just move forward. GitHub actually also, I think yesterday or the day before yesterday, they actually I finally came out with some updated policies regarding their exploit malware and vulnerability research uh, being hosted in their platform. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that they actually uh, updated their policies from from what is my read in a positive manner. Uh, they still will allow quote-unquote dual-use stuff and code to be hosted in GitHub. They also are setting some new policies around, you know, providing in the security.md uh, file contacts for potentially arbitration or discussion or escalation points. So overall, you know, I, I like GitHub security team a lot. I think a lot of the things that they do make a lot of sense. They're very pro-research, very pro-security uh, in general. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they came with this outcome, but I was very, very pleased to see that offensive security tooling has a play in GitHub and, and it has... And it's within policies because I am a, I'm a strong believer that providing strong proof of concept, it, it is overall for the better of the industry. I'm well aware that, you know, you can use a knife to cook or to kill, but I think 99% of the cases is used to cook, not really to kill. I'm completely in favor of continuing to develop offensive security tools and offensive security proof of concepts and hosting them uh, from an uh, 
completely open to the world for people to learn and, and learn from those, from people to actually use those toolings for, you know, uh, legal offensive security testing. And actually, moreover, like, it's for the first reason, education. I, I think the best way to for a lot of people to learn how to write exploits, to look how other exploits are reading and and understand the logic and, and go through them and actually use them. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think this is very sensible positioning from from GitHub. It took them a while to come up with what is a very common sense kind of standard statement almost. There's nothing surprising in there, but I think in places they've probably been quite brave. It would have been far easier to have just said no. Uh, to put it bluntly, it would have been easier to have made this GitLab's problem. But for whatever reason, they have chosen... Like, this is a cultural decision on their part, right? It's not a technology decision, particularly. It's not even, um, apart from the stuff about it not being used as a delivery network or not being used as an active part of an attack, it's not even an operational security thing. It's it's a cultural position that they want to be a good place to enable the security conversation to happen and for people to get better at security overall. So I, I'm super in favor of it. I think it took an amount of... Clearly, um, there have been some awkward conversations gone on behind the scenes to enable this, and they have chosen to be brave and to take, you know, what could be, you know, a slightly higher risk position, but something where culturally they think they're doing the right thing. And it's my take. If I had to guess, I think the thing that took the most was the, the legal fight, because as you rightly put it, they're taking a risk. Uh, the moment they're accepting this type of code, it has dual usage and there is potential malicious use for it. Now, I'm pretty sure the lawyers were pretty you know, pretty fast to actually, you know, come up with those comments. So um, I wonder if they took them long and and mainly because of legal reasons. I think the cultural, it's great. And, you know, to my first comment, like, I think they have the, the right culture. Like they actually promote, um, they, they have a security research team that promotes and helps open source. So the security team and the company in general has a very good cultural position that it's pro-security in general, on prosecuted research. But being there and being there from a legal perspective, I think there are two different aspects. And, and some, of, some of the things we do in security are gray areas, right? Like from a legal perspective, you know, because the morality of uh, a researcher versus the other one is very different. So I think the only way to, so, to you know, be fair is to have some legal and, and some very clear state, statements. So I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, it makes me very happy that they're very brave and they're willing to continue to host our community and allow us to share our knowledge and our tooling using their platform. Do we have any uh, runs today, Paul? Like, I have not hearing you complain a lot. Maybe you're just too busy this week. It has definitely been a busy week. Uh, so apropos of our earlier conversation about development dependencies and like CVEs inside of like libraries you depend on and whether or not those things are relevant. Uh, I have a, a story of a, a world where you ship a like a library and you ship this library to end users so that they can incorporate them into their own applications. And the security team that like helps oversee this library has strong opinions that you should never ship anything with CVEs. That's a nice laudable statement. But this library is written in Python and the way you make sure that you get the exact set of dependencies you want in Python is, of course, pinning. But if you pin an exact version in Python, 
then no one else can use a different version. Like this isn't JavaScript. There's not the, the concepts that NPM has for being able to load differing versions of the same library, although that's a separate concern that I have that I would be happy to rant about in the future. Uh, but in Python, that means that the end application is responsible for pinning. It should always pin its dependencies, but libraries should not. Because if a library depends its dependencies, then anything it depends on has to match that exact version if they have the same dependency. And if they don't, then nothing can ever be installed and nothing can ever work. So this security team insisted that you cannot ship with vulnerabilities. So they pinned in a library level. Unfortunately, they depended on cryptography, uh, my Python package. Cryptography recently dropped OpenSSL 1.02 support. Now, this is relevant for users on slightly older like enterprise distributions like Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7 and things of that nature. If you want to ship something on RHEL 7 and you pin to the latest version of cryptography, you cannot be successful unless you also custom compile your own OpenSSL. This is usually the sort of thing that users find onerous, uh, or in most cases, utterly beyond their capabilities. So this is maybe an unwise choice. But if your security team is particularly bloody-minded, maybe this is the sort of thing that you get gridlocked into. Uh, so I don't know how you systemically fix a problem like this, but like in general, I will give the same advice I give to, to everyone around this sort of thing. Libraries do not get to pin dependencies. Libraries must choose minimum versions, and, and if they need to, of course, maximums. But like you, you set a range. And ideally it's a, a half, like a it's a half range, right? Like so you'd say cryptography must be greater than or equal to version 2.5 because we depend on APIs added in 2.5 and above. Uh, but you would not specify anything else because you cannot know what your users are compiling against underneath. You don't know if that version of OpenSSL has been patched. You don't know if it's been unpatched. You don't get to have the luxury of making that like security decision. The end application must make that security decision. And in some ways that's unfortunate. You'd like to protect your users. You'd like to let them know that these things are not ideal. But the only thing you can do is say, we will guarantee it works with the latest. And therefore, if you have tested against that and you are aware of, the con of, of what you need inside of your environment, you can do that. Anything else is just guaranteeing that no one is using your product because if they were, it wouldn't work for them. Well, and also if you're pinning versions when an underlying library patches a security bug, you also happen to be vulnerable unless you actually like massively release a new package, right? So you also get in, into a security problem on its own. And I think to your point, from the security point of view, this also comes to my comment about vulnerable versus exploitable. Like, I wonder, you know, it's, it's, it's a very nice thing to say, yeah, we will release without CVEs. Yeah, granted, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's beautiful. Uh, a world without lawyers, according to the Simpsons, would also be beautiful, but equally imaginary. I think that at some point, uh, you either do the homework and say, okay, like, you won't release with anything exploitable, which it's a much more difficult thing to prove, but I think somewhat of a more technically correct definition because you might have, you know, there might be underlying packages with CVEs, but if they don't affect you, they don't affect you. Like, like uh, there's, there's nothing else to, 
to say that. I mean, besides that, but trying to think about the logic of this of, of this team and why you make the decision, and I honestly cannot, I cannot see any good security outcome out of it, or that that require you to say, okay, we're going to make sacrifices such as the one you make. I mean, and I and I I, I agree with you that they're incorrect software development. Um, things to do, but uh, even from a security perspective, I don't even think that this is quote unquote the correct thing to do either. Yeah. I mean, I can see the, I can see the positioning as like a, Hey, we don't release end user applications with known CVEs without going through an exception process. Like that's a common model. You could see this, that happening in general, but like this, I guess, also touches on my general disdain for CVSS inside the context of libraries, which is that like vulnerabilities in libraries are utterly dependent upon usage pattern. And therefore, the CVSS 9.8 that's in Rob's application is zero in mine or vice versa. And we're using the exact same version of the exact same library, right? It's just he used the vulnerable code path and I didn't. And so it's very, very difficult to make informed judgments about vulnerability and exploitability in your dependency trees. And so because it's hard, it is generally easiest to say thou shalt not have them. But the, yeah, yeah, it makes, it makes yeah, the tooling sense. just doesn't allow for this. Like you can make assertions about final packaged applications. You cannot make assertions in the context of libraries, developers, or choosing to consume that are themselves part of a larger whole. I think the right thing to do from the security perspective will be, okay, review every single CVE and literally make a declaration. Does it affect you? Does it not affect you? And you know, if it doesn't affect you, that CVE is non-existent. Um, a few years ago when I was reporting some XXE vulnerabilities, I actually ran into this issue where it sort of applies because I was writing, I was reporting against libraries. And the funny thing is that, you know, I was reporting against a Python library, which used an underlying library that actually was also vulnerable. So the vulnerability wasn't on the first library, actually was on the second library, which actually then escalated to leave XML to begin with. The funny thing is that all of these teams actually decided to unilaterally fix the issue themselves, uh, it, which, which was great, but we, you know, we fixed it on the outermost library and then the innermost library also decided to fix it on their own because they also felt that it was up to them to fix it. And all, all the way at the end, LibXML ended up fixing it as well. But to your point, Paul, none of these libraries were actually, I mean, all of the underlying libraries were vulnerable, but they, know they were not vulnerable as well because it really depend on the end user library of how we actually implemented this to actually whether determine if you were vulnerable or not. But the past themselves, if you actually, if the if another layer above that actually escaped or or didn't implement DTDs in this case because it was an XXE, it wouldn't be vulnerable, right? So, or it wouldn't be exploitable even necessarily either. So it's it's very very difficult to ascertain unless it's something very specific that pays, that affects an own on the library to actually determine vulnerability. And as a consult, I mean, having to pass as a consultant on you too, it's whenever we outed libraries, it was very difficult to determine, okay, what is actually vulnerable or what is not. A, a lot of the cases, it came back to us providing proof of concept code and say, hey, if a user does this in this way, this library becomes vulnerable, but otherwise it does not, right? But 
is that a vulnerability or, or is not? Like if it, the, the way that I personally define it is if it's in the power of the, of the code within the library to fix it, it is a vulnerability in the library. But if it's up to the user to make a decision, whether the user is, gets to decide that, it's up to the user to actually do it. I think a very common practice of this that the security, the security industry decided to take unilateral decision upon was uh, when you look at web apps, a lot of this framework was not scaping by default, right? And, and you, you were responsible to scape yourself a lot of the uh, user-provided content. And in order to improve the overall security of these quote-unquote frameworks or libraries, you ended up automatically escaping and you have to, you know, you went from a sort of, from an always-on model and you have to opt out out of escaping versus like, hey, I'm always off and if you want to escape, you have to enable this. Because it was better for the industry in general because we realized the developers were never escaping. But the libraries themselves were not vulnerable. Like, it was the application that the developer was writing that actually was vulnerable. That, for me, sort of like farters... Uh, prove your point that uh, you have to be very careful. I mean, I think it's a good intent to say you shall not release without CVEs. Technically speaking and effectively, I think the problem is is, is being incorrectly framed. Yeah, well, when all you have is the CVE hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, that's a good summary. But oh well, uh, it's been a it's been a pretty good week. We spoke about a lot about uh, very interesting. Uh, coding and open source stuff that I think are slowly improving the industry. And I, I just look forward to continue to see more and more of these things as, as we move on. I, I hope that you guys have a pretty good week. I hope, uh, Paul, that you can patch your leak in your roof and uh, you don't get any more thunders that might uh, knock on wood, you know, run you out of electricity power yet again in less than like, what it would be lucky number three in the, in one month? Yeah, it's something like that. Hey, I guess uh, I guess the skies are not in your favor in Dusty nowadays. But oh well. Rob, hope you have a good week as well. It sounds like it might rain here as well in Seattle. So uh, hopefully we don't get uh, thunderstorms. Well, those, those are very rare up in here. Yep. No, it's uh, it's been a glorious week. Uh, the weather has been very nice. I've been working outside all week. Um, if the rain brings us all inside, it's, it's uh, going to be fine. And Unlike Paul, we don't live in a third third world country. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we can take a bit of rain here in Seattle. I think we'll be okay. Yeah, we shall be. And actually, you're correct. It's uh, We had, like, what, like 20, 26, between 26 and 30 Celsius, like in June. It's It's been awesome. All right. Oh, well. Talk to you all next Have week. Have a good week. See you guys. Bye.